Welcome back to Practical Philanthropy with me, Lynn Tomlinson, Head of Impact at Casanova Capital. And this is our fourth episode, and we are shortly going back to our roots to look at how you can give back to your local community, whether that's your community now or the one you grew up in. But before we do, I wanted to share some reflections on this podcast journey. I started this podcast because I'm really privileged to see such incredible philanthropy expertise out there, whether that's philanthropists who have been funding specific areas for decades or the people on the front line delivering the projects that they fund. And I really wanted to bring that expertise and experience both to our clients and to other actors in the philanthropy sector. And what's really struck me, having had the privilege to listen to these inspiring people over this series, is just how deep that expertise and their knowledge of the sector they specialise in runs, how open they are to sharing that knowledge and how willing they are to collaborate with others. And I've really learnt a lot and I hope you found them useful so far, even if it's just one small piece of insight that's really got you thinking or has helped you with your philanthropy, then my guests and I will have done our job. So let's get to today's episode where we explore an area that I know is close to many people's hearts. And that's how do you give back to communities that have played a role in helping shape who you've become? In this episode, I talked to Kate Markey, CEO of the London Community Foundation. So welcome, Kate, to Practical Philanthropy. Um, we're in our beautiful recording studio here at Schroeder's and talking into what looks like furry-covered saucepans <laughs> at the moment, which has slightly um, put me off a bit. But um, you're a journalist, so presumably this is, you, you know, you're yeah. used to this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you uh, you have to get to a point where actually kind of you ignore the kind of the massive black arm and kind of saucepan <laughs> that's staring you in the face. <laughs> um, but how did you go from journalism to being the CEO of the London Community Foundation. Just tell us a little bit about you. So I um, started my journalism career on the local newspapers in Liverpool, and they were the free newspapers where you are literally walking the streets um, and doing the Crown Court, uh, the the local police stations, etc. And you really learn your accountability to your community, especially when you get things wrong. Um, And I then kind of did some work on the regionals as well. And and, but I was getting to the point where I could see what the trajectory of actually kind of what that was. And I also felt those papers weren't necessarily covering some of the stories that I was really interested in, and also potentially not offering solutions. Um, And so I left to go and work for something called The Big Issue as it was mm. starting um, and then became editor of The Big Issue uh, in the north um, and was there for eight years mm. um, and joined there as a journalist. Um, uh, the, you know, The Big Issue was a social enterprise that that was trying to radically do things differently um, and I left committed to wanting to work mm. in the social sector and be part of a solution. That's amazing. And ended up at the London Community Foundation. And so could you just tell us, um, for those who are listening who are not familiar to community foundations, sort of why they exist, what they are, what they do? Absolutely. So we are all charities um, ourselves. We exist to inspire local philanthropy to invest in the issues that matter most to local communities. We, there's 48 of us in this country. Um, we're built on a US-Canadian model of, of community foundations where the sector is much bigger. But, you know, the common thread through all of us is to inspire philanthropy, to be able to take donors on a journey with their giving, but to really focus on issues that matter locally and to be local champions mm-hmm. for, for what's needed locally. 
That's brilliant. And small community charities are a real lifeline for so many of our most vulnerable people. So can you just tell us a little bit more about the sort of scale and breadth of how those organisations are supporting various groups within local communities? If I give you a bit of a picture of the kind of organisations that the London Community Foundation supports. So um, a few years ago, we did a, a, a publication called Voices in the Front Line. And that gave a picture of the types of types of organisations that that we look to support, seventy five percent have the have have less than five employees. So there's a really significant volunteer engagement, and that's mm. important when you think about their economic value to the local community. One third of them are working at a borough level, mm. um, so that really intimate intimate connection to local areas turnover. Half a million, many of them much, much mm. less than, than even that. Yeah. Um, and if you think about the average annual grant size that London Community Foundation gives uh, on behalf of our donors, 23,000, mm. what we're talking about here is organisations whose purpose isn't necessarily to scale, but actually it is mm. to go deeper and to have much uh, long-term connections to the local community, long-term local intelligence uh, and referral networks um, to work with some of the most marginalised people mm. um, in, in, in our communities. And I think actually we saw that really during COVID as well. Mm. We saw local charities pivot very quickly um, and they are the ones that moved rapidly. They pivoted their models and they were the ones that were providing um, essential food, uh, care, um, safeguard, um, essential services really, really quickly mm. and covering a range of a range of issues um, that are also kind of very pertinent to that local area. I think kind of one of my one of my fears at the moment, if you know, if we talk about actually kind of the things that kind of keep you awake at night, I think I worry that that, that local charities um, are ha, and small charities have, have often kind of been seen as the kind of the nice add-ons. Mm. Um, our experience in the funding that we've done through COVID, through Grenfell, um, through now through the cost of living, is actually the more marginalised people are, mm. the more dependent they are on those local on those local community uh, charitable organisations, and that's that's the thing that concerns me. Mm. That actually how much more um, dependent and how vital these organisations are. Um, so could you talk to us and give us a little bit of insight into the breadth and the range of issues that these local community charities are, are trying to solve for and also just unpack a little bit why they are um, often best placed to come up with the most effective solution? So often what we find is there are certain issues that local charitable organisations or community groups have a really, really vital role um, to play because of their local connections and their the trust that they have. One of those is uh, violence affecting young people. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, actually kind of the under, one of the underlying issues around violence affecting young people is poverty. Mm. Um, but actually kind of how that plays out is often on a postcode and neighbour neighbourhood mm. basis. Um, and so actually having really intimate knowledge of people in the area, mm. other connections in the area, and uh, with the police and also with um, social services, whether that be an informal or actually or often informal mm. basis is actually really vital to, number one, looking after young people who are affected, but also trying to find some level of solution to them. Um, I can give you one really great example of an organisation that we um, we have supported over the years through uh, our donors um, donor support. 
the organization called Juventus, and mm-hmm. um, they're based in Lambeth. Um, they are part of the Divert program, um, and that is a collaboration between Lambeth Police, uh, sorry, uh, Met- Metropolitan Police, Lambeth Council, and this wonderful charity that's led by people with really solid youth um, support experience mm-hmm. and actually kind of with a big heart <laughs> around young people. Um, and actually kind of what that what that connection does is actually at a point where a young person um, of a certain age is, arre- is, is arrested, that's a reachable moment, mm-hmm. a touching point where they can help them think about actually what they're going to do with their mm-hmm. life and the risk they're at. Yeah. But it's that coordinated approach, but it's the local intelligence that Juventus is bringing to the table mm-hmm. there that makes them really vital, but actually also kind of quite cost effective. Yeah. And could you just talk to us about whether there's any cold spots in funding that you're seeing, so areas where philanthropists typically don't don't like funding. I think that's a really interesting question because it's about motiv- you know what what this comes down to is about motivations mm-hmm. for giving, and we all have it, don't yeah. we? We all have it. We all it's either uh, an issue that's kind of very close to us personally, um, or a um, you know kind of a, an individual, or there are lots of complex reasons why people want to give and why they don't want to give. I would say actually kind of one of the challenges we have in London, London being a series of villages, Mm. is, um, you know, we are 32, 33 boroughs, if you include the city of London, um, and actually kind of where you will find people wanting to give on their doorstep, which is amazing and we will always encourage, but actually kind of also to consider actually kind of there are geographical areas, um, so out of London borough areas, mm-hmm. often actually because they're not the, they're not the big big boroughs in, in London, actually kind of we do see kind of definite cold spots there mm-hmm. and we will always try to encourage donors to think about giving pan-London um, yeah. because people's lives often don't happen on a borough basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly if you are a, a, vulner- a very vulnerable person, actually kind of your... Um, your life will be quite complex. You will be on lots of different case caseloads of of organisations trying to help you. We always try to encourage donors to um, to think about um, the issues that um, are really impacting um, their local areas, uh, but actually also to think about how big issues also play out locally. Mm. So one of the one of the funds that we are considering at the moment uh, and we are fundraising for is thinking about misogyny mm. uh, and thinking about. Um, young people, particularly young men, obviously, and actually how that's impacting them and their relationships mm. with women around them. Um, there's an acknowledgement there that actually kind of that's quite a brave fund mm. to think about and actually also where funds are coming from. So it's, we are also very cognizant of the fact that actually kind of some funds might be more appropriate for um, our individual donors yeah. compared to kind of some of our corporate donors mm. um, because we work across individual corporate and also public sector and government Mm. funds as well but actually kind of how this issue was really playing out because it's all interconnected whether it's around violence against women and girls whether it's around um street violence Mm. and actually kind of how's that and also around mental health these these issues on a personal basis are actually also very interconnected um Mm. and it's also about demonstrating the evidence of actually kind of what interventions can look like and Mm. how they help and just on the, the London landscape more broadly, so I was I was listening to James Rutledge of Made in Stoke, I'm sure you know him, and he was talking about how certain towns suffer from this concept he calls the brain drain, and the technical term I believe is apparently is labour diaspora, 
Is okay. that right? Diaspora. I had to Google that and <laughs> um, did my three advert uh, thing. Um, and I love his articulation of that because I just think it's so much more relatable, the, that brain drain you have in these towns. And it's this concept that people are desperate to leave the places that they grew up in for many reasons if they're, um, you know, living in, in poorer parts of the country. So they've either, you know, they've got a, a, a strong social background and they want to progress so they leave or they're, they're you know, they've been living in poverty and they want a better life so they leave. And what you then get is this sort of downward spiral mm-hmm. that we get. You know, the, the north-south divide is a really um, obvious one of those. But but what happens then is when they are successful, you know, settle down, create careers, or maybe they've come to London, is when they want to give back, they often go back to their roots, which is what Absolutely. we call this <laughs> podcast, um, and give in their local um, in, in where they grew up. And that's probably a double-edged sword for you as the London Community Foundation because everyone thinks of London as this just extraordinary wealthy city but it's actually a city of extremes and I just wondered if you could talk us through just the you know your experience of of how that that gap is played out in practice and just what it actually looks like in reality. I think we all know that you know London is a, is one of the greatest cities in in the world, but actually, kind of as you say, it it has incredible disparity and real inequality. If, you know, if I give you some of these, the statistics that kind of really always always stick with me. You know, it's home to ten of the poorest boroughs in the mm-hmm. in the country. Fifty six thousand households in temporary accommodation. I mean, that is mm-hmm. staggering, absolutely staggering. And um, a third of children in, in London, six hundred thousand youngsters living in poverty. Um, those are really, really stark messages when also kind of we think about how often we live our lives in London, that mm. we all come to London if we're not from here, but actually also if we're from here, to take full advantage of, mm. of what the city has to offer. And, uh, and often kind of we run our lives at 100 miles an hour mm. and that makes the population kind of quite transient as mm. well. But actually when we are here, we are... Um, taking full advantage of what the city has to offer and making the most of ourselves and our time here. And actually kind of what we see is, um, as you've rightly said, mm-hmm. that people will want to give back to where they're from first, mm-hmm. whether that's whether that's in this country or mm-hmm. abroad. Um, and it is only at times of kind of real crisis where we see an uplift in people giving mm-hmm. to London. Um, but actually, as you say, you know, it is it is a series of villages, but actually, kind of also, people also live in their own mm. villages as well, yeah. much like kind of in other places of the yeah. co- in in the country. But it's how do we how do we kind of encourage them to think about um, perhaps they were made in London? Yeah. And I think there's a really interesting debate there about kind of leveling up and kind of leveling up nationally and leveling up globally. And that actually, kind of when London is when London is good. Everywhere else is good mm. um, in the country, but actually, kind of, how do we how do we get people to stop and think? Actually, London made me. Mm. That's really nice. I love that. <laughs> made in London. So watch this space, yeah. obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and can I talk about collaboration because it's one of the reasons why I actually started this this podcast journey that we're on is that I'm in a really wonderful position where I get to see people doing really brilliant things and they've been working in sectors for you know almost decades and then on the other side I also see people who are just starting out in philanthropy so they're like really excited by it um and something and it's really hard to do and really hard to do well and what I would really love is that if people who are starting out learn and collaborate with those who've been in the sector for 10 years 
because I think they'll find it more enjoyable, but also resources will go further. They can learn from lessons. They can and get the most out of their giving much quicker than if they try yeah, and go absolutely. it alone. So you mentioned something really interesting there about um, the idea that people will pull money in a crisis. So, um, for example, I'm thinking with, with the awful Grenfell disaster where you had 64,000 funders provide over 10 million. 64,000 um, donations. Donations, yeah. yeah. Over, t over 10 million. Um, and that was a combination of an incredible outpouring through our through we have a relationship with the evening standard mm -hmm. and it was an incredible outpouring and and because of the coverage obviously that they they were doing alongside everybody mm -hmm. else um the the other media outlets but actually also a real outpouring of mm -hmm. corporate donations uh outpouring from everywhere to be yeah. honest it was just yeah. utterly overwhelming yeah and so there's that crisis response but when we're not in crisis there isn't the same level of collaboration do you have any insight as to why We've we've seen it. We saw it with Grenfell. We definitely saw it with COVID. Mm. Um, less so actually on cost of living. Mm. I think there's a very natural and a natural urge um, when we are all shocked by what we're presented with um, that we just want to help. Mm. And I think that's not we all we all mm. do that in 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 uh, you know our own giving. I think there is a real you know kind of I think people go through a a process of actually kind of I just have to help mm. um uh and but I think actually kind of as human nature we have a desire to desperately try and get back mm. to some level of normality and you know we we all saw that during COVID didn't we yeah. that actually kind of the, well that was that was happening but let me give you an, an instance of actually kind of where where the difference happens um so during COVID um we were very lucky uh, to be able to collaborate with the National Emergencies Trust mm -hmm. as part of the UKCF network of community foundations. Um, we had set up an appeal and had money out of the door to support uh, emergency provision within, provision within four days. Mm -hmm. um, we committed three times the amount of money that we normally do yeah. um, with the same level of staff. Mm. Now, uh, kind of when we think, when we talk about kind of efficiencies, mm -hmm. actually kind of what's, um, uh, what what the reason why that happened? A was because the staff were absolutely amazing. Mm, I will it, yeah. it will be one of my proudest moments of how the LCF team were. Um, but what it was also was that all of the donors who worked with us rang and mm. said, "Take the restrictions off my funds. Yeah, do what you need to do. Mm. We we yeah. and come back and just tell us what happened." It's amazing. Um, but actually kind of gradually, actually what we saw is people's desire to get back to normal. Mm. Actually kind of what came back in is those, thing, those things about what, what do I want my fund to yes. do? Mm. How do I want my fund to be? Mm. And actually kind of is it, is it now meeting what I want yes. to do? And actually kind of my, my, my plea, to, and this, we saw this across absolutely mm. everything. And I think some of the plea is in our, in our rush to get back to normality, mm did we forget about actually kind of how we felt when we gave those funds, yeah. how, what the benefits we all had of those funds being delivered differently um, and what would we forego now and actually mm. kind of also what is the difference between an emergency and a crisis because yeah. we are in a crisis now. Yeah, a permanent crisis. A permanent crisis. <laughs> but actually mm. why is that different to yeah. an emergency? It was so heartening to hear Kate talk about the impact of donors lifting their restrictions on funding during COVID and other crises and how that enabled them to deploy three times the money they usually do 
with the same level of staff. And this rapid response and way of funding undoubtedly had an incredible impact on people's lives. And given how successful this approach was, I find it really interesting to hear that over time, post-crisis, that donors have gone back to adding restrictions to their donations. The need and benefits of philanthropists providing unrestricted funding has been raised by every single guest and every single charity I have spoken to on this podcast. In fact, unrestricted funding is so valuable to charities that research undertaken by NFP Synergy of 286 charitable organisations found they would rather have half a million of unrestricted funding than one million of restricted funding. Importantly, smaller charities valued unrestricting funding more than larger charities for obvious reasons. Therefore, I think the message to philanthropies is really clear from the sector. If you are going to support a charity, the best support you can provide is unrestricted multi-year funding. Well, that's really interesting. And what's what's also really interesting is I think people are um, or avoid the larger charities because they feel that the money is, you know, waste is a horrible word, but they, you know, people tend to feel a little bit removed from the actual interventions. Whereas you are actually working or were working with those larger charities, weren't you, in times of crisis to actually get the money out the door? So could you just talk to us about that relationship and I mean, the dynamic? I, I think, yeah, I think there's lots of different levels to mm. this. But actually, I would also, I would almost start by saying, let's look at the role of the state. Mm. So the state has gone, and I'm saying that in the broadest sense, the state has gone from a a position of deliverer mm. of services in the broadest sense yeah. to, a, to a commissioner of mm. services in the broadest sense to a collaborator of <laughs> in the broadest sense to something in between all of those three now. Mm. And it is complicated. And yeah. also that's on the backdrop of quite significant austerity, factually, oh, yeah. austerity. And so I think what you've seen is, um, so we are dealing with that. And actually, we definitely know in some of the work that we do, particularly around things like violence against women and mm. girls, there are very specific community-led work that actually kind of the public sector is really relying on to help very, very marginalized women, uh, particularly from certain communities and women with no recourse to public funds to access services because they know that they're not accessing mm. mainstream institutional yeah. services. And also to a degree they shouldn't, that, that actually kind of those those services being provided by community-led, you know, kind of very specific community-led mm. services is actually appropriate because that's, that's where the trust, the understanding um, and some of that local cultural intelligence will be as well. I think there's another point around here as well that actually it isn't particularly new that we are seeing, which we are doing, mm. both large charities, and by the way, please do not read this as a a big charity bad because I absolutely mm. don't believe that. I think kind of there has to be, there has to, and it's appropriate that there's a place for everything. However, what we are seeing increasingly is large charities coming either to us or going directly to charities that we might be supporting as a means of, of, of actually collaborating with them, whether that's through funds, um, access to get, re to, get to their beneficiaries yeah. because they know they're reaching them and they're mm. not. Yeah. But actually kind of that's not particularly new. Um, in my previous life, I've, you know, I, I ran a um, recruitment agency for ex-offenders and had large 
outsourced providers who were doing employability work um, or ex-offender work coming to our organization to reach the ex-offenders um, uh, because uh, for us to be the to be the additional service when actually yeah. I knew what we were providing was the core service yeah that's really interesting on the government point do you mind if we just um, go back to that a little bit because I think one of the reasons the interventions don't work is well one there's no money for prevention is there and there's also, um, whilst the state wants to deliver these services, they're not as good at delivering them because they're so far removed from the communities. They're sort of very top down. Is there anything that's going on around getting more, you know, power's the wrong word, but more, you know, more, um, what's the word, distribution perhaps of, of assets locally so that local communities actually say what their needs are and, and ha have more control over budgets? And is there a role, is there anything you're seeing around that? I mean, I think there's a. I think there's some really amazing examples, and you're seeing it nationally. Um, but I'm going to use a London example of where the state, in its broadest sense, is reaching out to say, "What do you need?" Mm. and then saying, "Okay, help us design it." Then they are taking it in house to then uh, create and procure, mm. um, and then re-engage. So I think, and that's particularly. You know, so there is a fund that that we um, that we work with uh, on the with the mayor's office uh, that's supporting uh, violence against women women and girls in very specific communities. But there has been a real focus, and we are seeing this. Mm -hmm. I, I, we, there are some really great examples across the country of co-design collaboration, um, where where local government is coming out to say what is needed, who's the best, who is best at delivering it. And then providing funding and support for those organisations to deliver the critical point, however, is that we've got to get the funding right. Mm. We've got to get, you know, away from short-term funding. Because if you put it into context of saying, if, if you work on the premise that the organisations that, that we are talking mm. about today are increasingly providing a vital service. It is not add-on, it's not additionality, it is cr critical services, some of it being funded by, mm. by government, um, but some of it not. Then actually kind of, but if you also then look at actually the type of funding that's typically, typically given to, to small charities, the dearth of short-term funding with disproportionate reporting attached to it, and by mm. the way, I'm challenging my own organisation mm. on that as well, yeah. absolutely. Um, uh, then if you're, you know, you were combining vital services, short-term funding, disproportionate reporting <laughs> alongside actually kind of then looking at their own financial resilience, mm. we have to say, how do we create funding environments um, and take um, and, and think about actually kind of going back to what happened during mm. COVID and, and actually kind of yeah. what was it that we felt we'd lost when we were funding like yeah. that? I talked to Mary Rose Gunn about that point um, because they fund small charities before mm -hmm. um, as an organisation. And she was talking about, you know, putting the burden on you as a philanthropist. So you do the bulk of the research, you do the bulk of um, of the, leg, the legwork. And Sophie Marples was very, very clear on that as well. I mean, they have 36 charities each year that applied to them for funding and they fund 33 and she was talking about exactly that but that was at the selection process I don't waste these organizations time they're so stretched and they're wonderful and every time you are asking them for something else and loading them up you're taking them away from delivering what you want them to actually 100%. do 
Do you have anything around the numbers of people in the UK who are interacting with charities on a daily basis who think they're interacting with government or, or other organisations? Do you have anything on that? Because I think it's really interesting that from my my perspective, people think, oh, the social sector is this tiny little thing on the edge of society. And um, I know it's worth 60 billion to the UK economy. It's the most diverse um, sector in terms of leadership. You know, if you want to support women, people with disabilities, ethnicity, um, you know, you should be funding in this sector because the, the, those organisations are disproportionately, you know, those people are disproportionately represented in in that sector. So do you have anything around that? Do you mean people who think that they are, if they're talking to someone to try and get help, that they're talking to government, but actually in reality they're yeah, talking to yes. charity? Yes, so, and just the numbers of social enterprises and charities who are, who are doing that delivery, like you said, that procure, that delivery piece for government. It is it is dis, dis, it is disproportionately large charities, mm. um, and that is that is part of um, the challenge. And also, you can also consider why people think also then mm. they're engaging with yeah. with the state. And I've had that experience mm. myself. Actually, kind of, I remember my um, my mother in law being in hospital, being picked up mm. to be taken home in an ambulance. And we, we, we got in the ambulance. We went home. We got out of the ambulance. I looked at the ambulance, and it said Red Cross. Mm. Yeah. And I, I had no idea mm -hmm. that actually kind of they did they did ambulance services yeah. in just just in day, you know kind of just community ambulance mm -hmm. services. So I think I think there has to be a um, really solid education piece around actually kind of the the role that charity is now playing mm -hmm. in our society. Yeah. And actually kind of it has gone it has people I think kind of person on the street would be, would be shocked about actually how far that yeah. has gone. Uh, and by the way, actually, kind of, that's not a bad thing. Mm. But actually, kind of, what we need to have is the systems and processes to make sure that actually, kind of, people are being paid uh, and contracts work properly. And also, mm. there is a diversity of where those contracts are happening. You know, there is a real challenge around scale. Around actually, kind of, it is easier to commission at scale, mm. but that, that doesn't necessarily mean you're meeting the, the people most in need. I think. I mean, I have a bit of a bugbear about. Um, um, some services being delivered by private companies that are delivering, you know, food that's so terrible that prisoners go on hunger strike rather than eat it. When you've got alternative solutions, you know, so there's a, an org a wonderful organisation that Bridges um, invested in called Impact Food Groups, which is just delivering much healthier, better quality food. But because there's that balance between investor and returns, um, the government's getting better social value. And so I just, I wonder if there's something in procurement that we could see come through. I mean, I think there help. is real, so listen, when 2010, the Social Value Act came into force, mm -hmm. I was, a, you know, kind of alongside lots of other, you know, kind of amazing people who, who you know, kind of, uh, who were really leading on it, but a massive push to, really get that act through parliament and mm. and i remember the day that it happened and actually kind of the what it did in really importantly was put the social sector on a mm. on a level playing field with the with the private sector mm. on actually kind of who creates social value yeah. i think we are now at a point where that legislation needs to go further mm. much further um and 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 you know and also local authorities and central government mm -hmm. <laughs> um really need to be held to account f for their own commissioning procurement practices and also should be reporting yeah. m much more and actually kind of where the, where 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 the where the the social value is at point of procurement 
to outcomes mm. uh, and actually going to potentially kind of look at financial motivation around yeah. those, those social value mechanisms yeah. and those metrics. I'm a huge believer in the power of the social sector to deliver public services with greater impact on the people we are trying to help whilst delivering better value for government. So I was really excited to hear from Kate that there is some innovation in local and national government in terms of working with smaller charities and local communities to co-create and commission public services. Importantly, we are also seeing innovation in the financial sector too, such as pay payments by results, also known as social outcomes contracts, which have the potential to deliver significant savings for government whilst delivering better outcomes for people. And Big Society Capital recently highlighted in their Outcomes for All report that since 2011, 139 million of government commissioned outcomes contracts have saved the government 1.4 billion of fiscal, social or economic value, of which 397 million are direct savings to or costs avoided by the public sector and it's really quite clear that the prize for getting this right is massive if we can get the commissioning of public services to flow at greater scale through the social sector and whilst there is some innovation out there there is definitely room to grow this further. For example, in social and healthcare, only 24% of the total value of contracts awarded between April 2016 and March 2020 went to VCSEs, that's Voluntary Community and Social Enterprises. Yet third sector providers of social care are rated more highly than their for-profit counterparts for quality of care. And there's a great piece by Nicole Sykes of the brilliant Pro Bono Economics, which I've linked to in the podcast, and that provides much more detail for those wishing to understand the interaction of the state and the social sector. So the question for me, I think, is what role can philanthropy play here? Well, as we heard from Kate, one of the barriers to being awarded a contract to deliver for charities is their size. Contracts are generally awarded to the largest charities. And therefore, there is a really significant role that can be played by philanthropists in terms of getting smaller charities what we call fit for funding. By providing them with secure, long-term, unrestricted funding, philanthropists who are prepared to take a little bit of risk can enable smaller, innovative organisations to scale and be awarded larger grants by other funders. And this can create a virtuous circle whereby smaller organisations that are delivering really effective interventions can become large enough to be awarded contracts to deliver public services. And there's a really great example of this in practice in our episode two of this podcast with Mary Rose Gunn of the Four. Give that a listen if you'd like to understand this area in more detail. So I called it this podcast Practical Philanthropy for um, a reason, which is I'm, I'm, you know, I'm external to the sector. So when I look in, sometimes I think, Oh gosh, that's very complicated, and I'm not sure I understand that. And um, I'm I'm a bit more confused than when I started. And I think for me, that's a barrier to giving. Um, so you know, hence the title. So what we tend to do towards the end of these brilliant podcasts with wonderful people is ask them to just think about some practical guidance that people could take away. How do people get in touch with their local community foundations? What questions should they be asking them, and what should they expect from yeah. them? So. You can go to um, www.ukcommunityfoundation.org um, and you will see a list of all the community foundations on there. And it's London 
cf.org.uk for the London one. You can, um, uh, there's some really great examples on their website of actually kind of the, the, the types of organizations they're supporting and how they can engage with you and the different funds that they manage. Um, I would, I would really recommend, um, going to a community foundation and asking, can you attend one of their events? Mm -hmm. Because actually that will give you, uh, the opportunity to meet potential peers, mm -hmm. because I think that's a really important part of your kind of philanthropic journey. Um, you know, we're all, we all, we all need to see that there are people, um, who are, who might be like us doing what we think we might want to do. And actually that's, mm -hmm. that's just human nature. You know, the local community foundations will be experts in, in their areas. They'll have a really good understanding of what charities need in those areas. But be really proactive about asking about what is needed. If you've got an interest in a particular area, read up about a, a particular need, read up about that need. But really importantly, then go and ask the community foundation in your area what that need and how it plays out in that mm. area. Because you might find actually kind of it's either ridiculously well funded already mm, yeah it doesn't actually happen there <laughs> i can't quite think of an example where that might not but actually kind of you you get the point actually yeah. kind of it's really important that actually kind of that we look at you know if you if you want to start if you're new to your philanthropy journey um uh ask those questions i would also think um you know some of these issues are really complex actually kind of you know i said before that being being poor and being disadvantaged and being marginalized is a complex, time-consuming, really stressful um, position to be in. And actually, if there were solutions to it, we would have all done it already and it, we would have gone home by now. But that isn't the case. Um, I would also actually ask who else is who else are they working with in terms yeah. of other donors mm -hmm. actually kind of you know um, I think it's really important for you to know where your money is sit sitting is, is sitting alongside um, and then I would also say just start yeah get going um, and then also can you you know your what you do now is going to be different in three mm -hmm. years time because actually yeah. kind of your confidence is going to grow as a donor um, and uh, and your experience and what that feels like to give money um, and and as you, as we talked about previously, be respectful, proportionate, mm. um, and and considerate and think about actually kind of what does long term impact look like beyond the lifetime of your grant or your fund and actually kind of how you can really think about organizational resilience of what you're supporting alongside the need you're trying to address. Because if you get the organization in a great place mm. or an even better place than you found it, because yep. you, um, you will absolutely find great organizations, then actually kind of, you know, actually how do you then help that organization get more funding from, uh, from other places yeah. also? Well, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I've absolutely loved talking to you. Your expertise just oozes out of you. So we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. We've talked a lot about scale on this podcast and about small charities in particular. And it's a really challenging word, small, because small can be interpreted as insignificant or unimportant. And that's clearly not the case here. The impact these smaller local charitable organisations are having on our most marginalised communities is anything but small. They are often delivering critical services that the state cannot or does not provide. But if we look at community foundations as a collective, however, we get a very different lens. These 47 wonderful organisations as a cohort are the UK's fourth largest funder with over 100 years of philanthropy experience and community foundations 
operate not just here in the UK, but in over 1800 communities worldwide, providing vital support for many vulnerable people. And I absolutely love talking to Kate and hearing her insight. I particularly liked her guidance on being proactive with your local community foundation. So pick up the phone, wherever in the world you may be, and ask them how what you care about is playing out in your local community, whether that's your community now, or if you go back to your roots, you choose. The next episode of Practical Philanthropy is a deep dive into the blue, where I talk to Jasper Smith about saving our oceans. Until then, you can reach me on lynn.tomlinson at casanovecapital.com.